Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, if you would, I welcome you to turn to Luke chapter 22. And once again, we will find the scene uh, now has uh, closed on the Last Supper. It has ended. The dawn of a new covenant has been promised by Jesus. Servitude in the form of washing feet has been presented. A betrayal has been predicted. And a reward for the faithful has been pledged. For his impending arrest, Jesus' disciples have been prepared. Um, All of this was done in complete privacy. You likely recall from verse 8 how Jesus had sent out Peter and John ahead of the rest to prepare for the Passover meal. They did that in secret. They were to enter Jerusalem and find a man carrying a pitcher of water, then follow him into a house. And even once they were there, they were to offer a qualifying question and ask, is this the place that has the room for the teacher? I guess apparently so they don't accidentally find or follow a wrong guy going in with a pitcher. Jesus would then follow later with the other disciples after all preparations for the Passover had been made. Well, there's only one thing then that Peter and John had neglected to prepare or to arrange for the Passover meal and that was for someone, which, which would have been uh, typical in that day, to have someone there to wash feet as they arrived, as they came into the house. To confirm, um, sadly, each of his disciples esteemed themselves as too high, too great to fill that capacity. So the feet went unwashed as they entered, and of course this provided the perfect opportunity for Jesus to display his humility himself in washing their feet. You know, sometimes you may hear that it asserted that Peter's fatal flaw was being too proud to allow his feet to be washed by someone else. That that is a misconception, though. Peter had no problem with other people washing his feet. No problem whatsoever. He had welcomed many to wash his feet throughout his lifetime. It was a very common practice in Israel. Uh, It was commonplace. Peter didn't want Jesus washing his feet because that undermined the hierarchy of greatness that Peter had embraced. People who were great didn't wash feet back in that day, all right? Uh, The disciples all saw themselves as very great. They even argued about who was the greatest Uh, But then they conceded that uh, they were not near as great as their teacher. Therefore, uh, Peter resisted Jesus washing his feet because that would have flipped up uh, their hierarchy upside down completely, their hierarchy of greatness. And so Jesus did. He turned it upside down. The location remained secret so that Judas could not betray Jesus prematurely to the authorities. Therefore, their processional into the city for the Last Supper was taken covertly. But now, with the disciples' instruction 
completed, Judas has departed to betray Christ uh, with no more remaining reason to hide. Their recessional back out of the city as they leave again becomes unguarded as Jesus retreats with his disciples to the Mount of Olives, just as he had done virtually every previous night. Um, Tonight is the night. This is the night in which when they, when they arrive back at the Mount of Olives, they will wait for the authorities and Judas to arrive. Uh, John 18 verse 2 says, Now Judas also, who was betraying Jesus, knew the place, for Jesus had often met with his disciples there. So please follow along as I read from Luke chapter 22 beginning in verse 39. And Jesus came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like droplets of blood falling down upon the ground. When he arose from prayer, Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow, and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation." Boy, this had to have been an ominous night. Ominous night waiting for Judas and the authorities to arrive and arrest Jesus. Verse 45 portrays the disciples as, as falling, falling into a, a very deep sorrow, a deep grief. But as there's nothing now left to do except to wait... Jesus commands them to pray that they will not enter into temptation. Well, I have to admit, I I have had a bit of a struggle this week in exactly how to represent this passage or how to present it. This night, this, this type of sorrow that they are experiencing, it is foreign to all of us. It is foreign to us. Uh, Also, the temptation that Christ is warning his disciples to beware of, uh, that temptation remains unclear. Unclear. There is considerable disagreement uh, among resources that that I often consult about the temptation. In a search for clarity, trying to figure this out exactly, and in a final act of desperation, I listened online to one of my favorite pastors from due north of us, and uh, I was going to listen to him preach through the passage, and after he, he finished, my mind was no more clear than when we started. There are some things in this scene that is, are very difficult for us to relate to. Um, there are certain mysteries that only the Spirit of God knows, and perhaps with his help today, um, the Holy Spirit will find it in his mercy to reveal a little bit to us about this scene, about the sorrow that was experienced uh, on this night, and something about, hopefully, we will learn the temptation uh, of which the disciples experienced. There, there is no experience 
that any of us have had that is comparable to this night. The sinless Christ, the holy, perfect Son of God, He's going to be violently seized by evil men. And then, Luke 18, verse 32, uh, there Jesus had already told the disciples he will be handed over to the Gentiles, mocked, mistreated, and spit upon. After they scourge him, they will kill him. That is the prediction uh, the Son of God has given. This is what awaits them as they proceed out to the Mount of Olives. Yeah, I apologize. I have no comparable illustration for us. When he and his disciples arrive to the place that Mark describes as a garden named Gethsemane, Jesus gives them this instruction, you know, pray that you will not enter into temptation. What is the temptation? What is the temptation? Is it a temptation to sleep because they are so tired? I don't think so. Is it a temptation to run and flee in fear? Maybe. I'm not positive. Is it a temptation to fight back and try to stop it? We know that uh, Peter experiences that very real temptation and acts upon it, so that surely exists. I asked these questions, but as I did, I found myself a little more intrigued when I found myself unable to find any reference in the gospel accounts suggesting that Jesus himself was tempted on this night. Failed to find that. However, that is how this scene is often represented. You know, Jesus struggles with temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. You might even have a section of your Bible or your notes titled as that. There are some very accomplished theologians who describe Jesus' struggle on this night in that way. Um, But there is something about that explanation, about that interpretation, I struggle to understand. We do know Jesus was tempted by Satan as he was in the wilderness. We know from the epistle to the Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. So categorically, Jesus experienced numerous sources of temptation. Therefore, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands the flesh. Yet the temptations that Jesus experienced... They were foreign to him. Let me explain. When suffering the physical limitations of the flesh, Jesus, we know, was tempted by Satan in the wilderness with hunger and with thirst. And and to appease the hunger of the flesh and the thirst of the flesh, natural human cravings that are not sinful, uh, he was tempted to satisfy them in a way that would be sinful. He was tempted by Satan. Jesus did not yield. He did not yield. But here's one thing we need to remember. Very important. Jesus did not have a fallen, sinful nature. He possessed a human nature, but it was not a corrupted nature, corrupted by sin. In the Incarnation... 
the Son's divine nature, the eternal Son's divine nature, and a human nature were perfectly united together. For Scripture tells us, for in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness dwells. Colossians 2 verse 9. These two natures became one, inseparable, and indistinguishable, right? He is truly God and He is truly man, but Jesus was not and is not a fallen, sinful man. This doesn't suggest that Jesus could not be tempted, but instead, uh, like Adam's nature before Adam fell, uh, before the fall, Christ's humanity was not corrupt. He was not corrupt. He was not a sinful man. Uh, He did not have a sin nature. He had a divine nature. The distinction between Adam and Jesus here is that Adam's human flesh even before the fall, was never united to a divine nature. Follow me? He was just a man. He was just a man. Therefore, Adam, in confrontation with the serpent, Scripture says Eve gave the fruit to him. He was with her. They were both there together at the scene. Uh, That source of temptation before the fall also originated from outside of Adam. And then he fell into sin and fell into corruption. What I want you to recognize as we look at this scene in the garden is that the human nature of Jesus, uncorrupted by sin, could not tempt himself. All right? He could not be tempted by himself, by his flesh. His divinity and his humanity were so perfectly united in the incarnation that there was no distinction between the two natures. He is fully God, and he is fully man. This means that in the incarnation, or at the incarnation, that in Christ, God took to himself a unique nature. He's a very unique person. The only one. Christ took to himself a unique nature that has been described by theologians as impeccable. Impeccable. We all know what impeccable means, right? It means that flawless, means unimpeachable, means perfect, a perfect nature. This would suggest as fully man, Jesus could not experience temptation from himself. Also, being fully God, Jesus could not sin. Being fully God, Jesus could not sin. He could experience temptation from outside of himself, but this incarnation, it's a, a, mysteri- it's a mysterious truth to behold, to be honest with you. Uh, don't fool around with the incarnation. I mean, we don't want to let that slip. That Christ is both fully God and fully man, as conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin. You you don't play around with the Incarnation. If you do, things go south pretty fast. It's very important to to understand this. We would likely all confess here, I imagine, that it is impossible for a holy and truly righteous God to sin, right? 
We're all agreed on that. God cannot sin. According to Hebrews 6 verse 18, it's not even possible for God to tell a lie. Can't tell a lie. So to suggest that Jesus could potentially sin would propose that there remained a disunity, a division, a disparity, a distinction between his divine and human natures. You know, that that invention by, well, it's credited to a man named Nestorius about 400 and something A.D. It's called Nestorianism. I don't think he gets all the credit, but he got the name anyhow. That was condemned as a heresy at the Council of Ephesus 431 A.D. Called Nestorianism. That God had two different natures. He's like half man, half God. They're not one. They condemned him as a heretic. What does his nature have to do with Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is what you're probably asking. I I would say a lot. A whole lot. It is important for us to recognize that Jesus, his uncorrupted and uncorruptible nature, did not possess the capacity to tempt him. It's not like ours. He's different from us. The question must then be asked, when he was completely alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, who or what could have possibly tempted him? James 1.13 assures God does not tempt anyone, but each is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. That's the fallen sinful nature in us. We're tempted from our lusts. We're always trying to blame it on somebody else, but it's a temptation from our lusts and our desires. Jesus did not have a, a lustful, fallen nature that could tempt him. And John 13, verse 27, assures that Satan had already taken off of Judas. You know, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. He had already left with Judas to lead him to the priests for that betrayal. So Satan's not in the garden with Jesus. Besides, if if Satan were the source or a source of a temptation here, most assuredly, As we observe in the wilderness when Satan tempted him, most assuredly Scripture would have made mention of it. If in the Garden of Gethsemane that Satan had tempted Jesus in some way. We don't read that. We don't see it. So, who or what is tempting Christ? Folks, the best answers that I could come up with are nothing and nobody. Let me explain. What would Jesus supposedly be tempted alone by himself to do? Tempted to abandon the cross out of fear? God doesn't fear. God does not know fear. Jesus is God. He doesn't fear death. Um, Tempted to abandon the cross of fear of pain and suffering. I don't think so. Sometimes how it's represented, but I don't think so. Since Luke 9, verse 51, ever since then, we have been assured that Jesus has set his face like flint with conviction in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 50 uh, to go to Jerusalem and willingly offer himself 
as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross, to, to suffer and die the penalty we deserve. Isaiah 50 verse 5, uh, this prophecy is concerning Jesus, says this, I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Think about that. Think about that. The Savior of the world, Jesus, does not tremble at the foot of the cross. He doesn't tremble in fear of the cross. I personally don't think he second guesses himself at all. I don't think he second guesses his destiny at all. I do not believe Christ expressed any hesitation towards suffering a death for our sins. In his own words, in John 12, verse 27, Jesus insists this, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came down out of heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Folks, Jesus is not tempted to abandon the cross to save his own life. He came to lose it. He came to give it. He was born for the very purpose of offering his life for us. That's the reason Scripture says that he came. Admittedly, It is difficult for us to comprehend, but now it appears to me that it is only after eliminating this notion of temptation that we can pinpoint the actual source of Jesus' agony in the garden. I want to know the actual source of his agonizing in prayer. In verse 40, Jesus told his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. doesn't say pray that I don't or pray that we don't. And by the way, when Jesus goes to pray, he goes it alone. He goes it alone. The reason he moves a, a stone's throw away is because he isn't going to leave any impression behind, any inkling at all that this was some kind of team effort in the garden. No, he moves a stone's throw away. Uh, he does it on his own. For privacy, he withdraws much as he taught, uh, much similar to how he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, he said, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners so that they may be seen. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. You know, we pray corporately. We do this on Wednesday evening. Very important. We pray corporately for things that are corporate things that involve us corporately. We pray privately for things that concern us privately. Jesus here prays privately. The president of Wheaton College, Philip Riken, writes this concerning the disciples' contribution in the garden. Even for the disciples, this was a pathetic effort, he says. 
and it left Jesus alone through the long dark night. When it came time for our Savior to do the work of our salvation, the disciples did not help him one bit. Jesus alone was called to the cross, and alone he grappled with that calling, for Gethsemane was a lonely place of struggle. Amazing, amazing. So then, if it is a place of struggle, and since it wasn't, at least in my impression, Jesus struggling against a sinful flesh of his own, nor a yearning for life's preservation. What then was his struggle against? It must involve something else. It must involve something else. Well, verse 41 says, He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Christ is, is struggling against a cup. He's struggling against a cup. A cup of what? Yeah, wrath. If you look at the Old Testament at all, very common that the wrath of God is uh, represented as a cup. He's struggling with the cup of the Father's wrath against sin. You know, this scene is not indicative of fear or spiritual weakness. But it is Christ's divine yearning for holy preservation. A divine yearning for holy preservation. MacArthur writes this, quote, His absolute holiness demanded that he recoil at the thought of bearing sin, guilt, judgment, and wrath. Referring to this recoiling MacArthur says, no other response was possible for the eternally sinless Son of God. I very much appreciate the contribution given by Matthew in his gospel. We see it in chapter 26, where he writes that Jesus went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then after checking on the disciples, oh, one time he goes back again. We're told that he went again away to pray a second time, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. So here's, here's the question being poised by Jesus. This, this is the question present in his plea. Can salvation be achieved any other way? That's the question. Can it be achieved any other way? Is there any other possible remedy for sin? This is what he asked the Father. Does it for himself? He does it for us. We know the obedience of the Son is well-pleasing to the Father. We we see it as baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Sinless, right? Sinless. So, if there were any other possible way, I think we can be pretty assured the Father would have provided it. What Christ's struggle in Gethsemane assures us is that there exists no other remedy for sin. There is no other way. He who has the Son 
has life. He who hath not the Son hath not life. He is the only way. In verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to Jesus, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. You know, the proposition of God becoming sin that nearly throws his physical body into convulsions. That God must become sin because there's no other way. In Matthew 26, verse 33, Jesus said, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Folks, the condition he experiences, it's a a rare but very... Very real condition. You might have heard of it before. Hematidrosis. It's a true medical condition. It's characterized by blood that oozes from the skin. It's only caused by extreme mental and emotional strain. Resulting in a, it's a subcutaneous, below the skin, a a dilating, a a bursting, uh, releasing blood into the sweat glands. In, into, the, into the region of the skin where sweat is released. To cite Philip Riken one more time, he states that the great bloody drops of sweat following from, falling from the Savior's brow showed that he was at the utmost extremity of human anguish. You know, sadly, the, the passage is, is so often misrepresented as a to depict a a fearful and cowering Christ. A doubtful Christ. One who, in the last moments before the cross, he second guesses himself, second guesses his mission, second guesses his father, expressing even regret, I've heard people say, that he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Folks, that could not be further from the truth. Could not be further from the truth. It's an invention of liberal theology that views Jesus as merely a man, less than God, and not the eternal Son, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. You know, such, such errors like that are eliminated once we correctly understand the true nature of Christ. That he's fully God and fully man. You know, instead, this graphic scene of blood and sweat, it amplifies, it it. It infinitely amplifies how we as finite and very sinful creatures, you know, we often fail to appreciate the true holiness of Christ. The true sinlessness of the Christ as the Son of God. Uh, who, who throughout eternity, throughout eternity past, all the way up until tomorrow morning, remained untainted by sin. God untainted, untainted by sin. But to make our salvation possible, to make salvation for our souls possible, those of us who are corrupted, those of us who are dead in our sins, he not only uh, offered himself to be stung by it, to be stung by sin, but he, he, at the cross, became crushed. He became crushed under the wrath of God for our iniquities. That is what the Holy Son of God did. J.C. Ryle 
a famed 19th century theologian, pastor in Liverpool, England. He answered this self-imposed question, quote, How can we account for the deep agony which our Lord underwent in the garden? What reason can we assign for the intense suffering, both mentally and bodily, which he manifestly endured? There is only one satisfactory answer, he says. It was caused by the burden of a world's imputed sin. Why should sin bring so much suffering, Ryle writes? Because sin deserves judgment. When Jesus took our sin upon himself, therefore he became subject to the punishment that sin deserved, which was the wrath and the curse of God, a death totally exposed to God's abhorrence to sin. His agony, wrote the Puritan Richard Baxter, was not from the fear of death, but from the deep sense of God's wrath against sin, which he as our sacrifice was to bear in greater pain than mere dying. Unquote. You know, having, having momentarily recoiled, the sinless Son of God recoiling from sin could only be expected. Now, after being strengthened by the presence of an angel, Jesus' prayer his prayer perfectly submits to the will of the Father. You know, there remains no hesitancy. There was only a moment of asking, and I believe that's for our behalf as well. No hesitancy on the part of Christ to be fully obedient all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. And he rises from this prayer victoriously, uh, no doubt, at least in his mind, ready to proclaim with his disciples, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Folks, he did it all alone. And then he came to his disciples, found them sleeping from sorrow. He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So what was the disciples' temptation? I'm going to be honest, I'm not exactly sure. Not exactly sure. They may have even been facing more than one. But much like them, when we are faced with with deep uh, sorrow and grief over what seems to be impossible circumstances, when we are facing that, you know, the flesh, it tempts us to want to give up. It tempts us to want to give up. Have you ever been tempted to give up? Have you ever been so offended or, or uh, sorrowful over relationships, even church or situation, whatever it may be, and you just want to give up? Folks, don't give up. Don't give up. I, I think this is what Jesus is saying when he's strengthening his disciples in the garden. I think he is saying, whatever you witness tonight, whatever you see done to me in the morning, whatever evil men do with the sinless Son of God, whatever falls before your eyes, it's going to be just in a few minutes now, whatever falls before your eyes, he tells the disciples, 
Don't give up. Don't give up. And when carried away in bondage, no doubt they would, they would tend to question God's goodness. They might think, how can a sinless, perfect man like that be drug away by men and nailed to a cross? You could think sitting there, waking up and seeing that, that you might think, is God really good? Folks, in the cross, God is really good. That is the measure of divine goodness. It's at the same point when Christ says to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We need to remember that. The flesh is weak. Don't give up, folks. Never give up. And I want to assure you that even in the shadow of the cross, when facing the shame over sin, He's going to now become sin in the sight of the Father. Even at that point, uh, Jesus does not contemplate leaving any of us behind, not giving up on any of us, uh, not leaving us in a, in a lost, sinful, unregenerate condition. He, he's loved the elect from the foundation of the world. He loves us. He would never consider abandoning us and leaving us behind. He will not leave us nor forsake us. What his prayer in Gethsemane confirms to all of us, there's no other way. There is no other way. Uh, Folks, because of all the discussion of Christ's nature and what we know about it, I wanted to end today with the Nicene Creed. Uh, But if you promise to remember this dialogue we had until next week, promise to remember some of this, I think it would be better to save that for communion next week, the Nicene Creed, which talks about uh, the nature of God and of Christ. Instead, uh, today, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. If you would, please stand as we pray together before our closing verse. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.